Welcome to the State of Minds podcast, where we pick the brains of the best minds in neuroscience today. This is a podcast of the Graduate School of Systemic Neurosciences at the Ludwig Maximilian University in Munich, made possible thanks to the generous support of Lena Bittel and Sven Schwan. So today we have an interview with Dr. Yulia Krupic, who did her PhD at the University College London and John O'Keefe's lab, the Nobel Prize winner for the discovery of place cells, where her research has been so outstanding that she didn't have to do a single postdoc to be granted her own lab and in no other place than University of Cambridge. Yulia was kind enough to share her experience of moving from physics to biology and talk about her path as an extremely talented young scientist. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Thank you for listening. And here is Dr. Yulia Kubic. You started off in physics, and how would you say this background influences the way you approach neuroscience problems now? Uh, so, first of all, thank you very much for uh, inviting me. Well, I think having physics as your background in neuroscience helps a lot, at least in my case, because I think at least even when I started in 2006 and also now, definitely a lot of progress is happening through tool development, and that definitely helps the system in this, I agree. And also because, well, system neuroscience is very exciting field, it's looking out because of the tool development as well as other things. And again, to have a physics background helps with data analysis. I would say when problem solving in a sense how you look at the problem, I think it's very different from the physical perspective. Sometimes it could be disadvantage, I'm sure, but uh, often it could be turned into something. I definitely, I am very happy. I think it works very well for me. How would you describe this physicist way of thinking about the problem? Is it more abstract than a biologist's point of view? I think it's also, well, how you formulate the question, I guess, how you analyze the data, how you look at patterns and interactions. And I don't know. I, I It's very hard to say because mm-hmm. then I would have to know how biologists think by definition, which I don't necessarily. But I think how you design your experiment because you you are then, you may not want to ask certain problems because you would not be happy to the kind of level of data that could be provided because you intuitively or not you would know that it would not it would not give you the kind of insight that you mm-hmm. like. So you, you you took your problems very carefully, let's say the ones that you tackle and you have a certain expectations and visions how where they should lead you, whether they would give you some insight into how to mm-hmm. work the mechanism and so on what what kind of, you know, what kind of depth do you have to go for? So I think that's definitely helpful. But again, I, I don't, I can't, I can't really tell you that my audience doesn't necessarily have it. Um, it's just that I think being a physicist, because you, you do have that training into kind of 
have an understanding into how ideas in physics were developed, how they were tested, uh, what's good enough, let's say. And also, but then you have all this uh, range of tools that you would be using, which you, of course, would borrow from what you need from physics. Do you have an example of a problem in neuroscience that you would like to study, but you realize that the tools are not here yet? I think so, yeah. Well, let's say this whole big question about what's memory and things like that, is, I think it's, it's very hard because they are very much distributed and even though we can support many neurons already, but that's still not good enough. So I think we are going there. How invasive we can be, for instance, to reduce that as much as possible. Yeah, so I would say for me personally, it's probably a memory question, but I could think of more as well. In your essay, Brain Crystals, published in Science, you describe this virtuous cycle from theory to experiment and then back to theory, back to the experiment. So you first notice border cells, then you developed the border field interaction model, and then you went back to test the predictions of this model. And this is definitely a dream of every neuroscientist. Yet, for students, a lot of the times the advice is given, choose either you are experimentalist or theorist, because you cannot do both equally well at the same time. Choose one, and then find collaborators to make up for your deficiencies. But you seem to be able to do both. So would you say that it's because of your background combined with your passion for experiments or also the fact that um, Nobel Prize winning scientists laboratory provides some resources that are not available everywhere else? Well, in my case, in terms of resources, I don't think so because all my experiments were done using petrol mm -hmm. or that's only now I started using some other things as well. So that I wouldn't say for this research. Intellectual mind, of course, is very important, no doubt, and uh, UCL is very good for that, and, and of course, being in job class is, is, is extremely rewarding. In terms of being able to do both, I do agree to an extent that always, even if you try to do both, one of the sides is definitely suspect. Because in addition to that, okay, so we have experiments in terms of doing experiments, which is also in itself an art, because you really you have to you have to think quite carefully at the time you trust, you have to do good control, and so on. But also there is a part of tool development, so that's another, yes, mm -hmm. uh, at least for me, quite important branch, which again, you have to, you know, devote quite a bit of time to trying to be all three, let's say, or even more. I would say definitely if you chose to be just one of it, uh, then you probably would be better than you are at the moment. But at the same time, to me personally, it's not even so much that I aim to, let's say, to reach some kind of level and go there, but it's more fun. So it just happens spontaneously how you distribute your time looking at the problem. So it just it happens very naturally, I would say. And so for me, in terms of theory and experiments, I, so when I, was, when I was doing undergrad in physics, I, none of my projects were experimental. Mm -hmm. I, I did not, uh, I mean, we had a, a practical where we did quite a lot of experiments in, in the general lab, but not for my essays, not for my summer projects. Everything was theoretical. Imperial College was analytical theoretical, 
then it was very happy to just experiment. So this was not a kind of at the same time. And looked for problem actually for quite a while. So in, that's the, for me, it, it was uh, absolutely amazing to be in Jonathan's lab because, because of his style and because he could, I suppose, be allowed one to just do whatever he wanted in the lab. So it, it was a, a lot of freedom. And these tools were actually cheap, so uh, that helped. Maybe if it was, a, you know, imaging or, or something else, then there would be very restricted times with the, with the microphones and whatnot, because other people would like to use it and it would be necessary for But with that show, it, it was reasonably easy to do. But then I concentrated a lot on, on experiments, but then again, inevitably, you, you start, you ask questions, you formulate questions, do experiments, you look at the data, and then you, you just get struck into a data analysis, and then you think about mechanisms, and then in, it was a time between data collection, or finalizing the data collection, and let's say if my first paper, maybe a year and a half, I wouldn't do any So I would just do uh, analysis and, and that kind of thinking. Uh, and then again, experiments. I, I do think you can do both of these things for more for some people, but... Just not at the same time, sequentially. Possibly, yes. And if you can do that, uh, that's great. Sometimes some people cannot do it for various reasons. I still think it is very, very helpful to know some work, I feel. Like, for instance, I'm not a virologist, but I would like to use quite heavily in my new lab tracing techniques and other things. So I spent one year in uh, a calories lab in, in the United States, basically, uh, well, I wouldn't say learning necessarily, um, it was not so much time for it, it was just a year, but at least uh, getting, uh, I would say, quite reasonably good idea how viruses are constructed, what limitations there are, how quickly the process goes, what can go wrong, at least in some cases. And I think that would be very helpful for me to then organize everything, if not do it myself, actually, but to organize everything at Cambridge and wherever I am. No other answer the question, maybe both for three or four, but uh, I think you can try. And I think you naturally would convert to a state which is the most you're more comfortable with. So you mentioned it already now, you have your own lab uh, at Cambridge. And I was wondering, how did you approach formulating your own research program? Okay, that's a tough one. <laughs> it's really difficult, I think, because, I mean, I guess I'm saying it's difficult. I think it, it, it depends. Every person probably uh, has his or her own stories and strengths and, and problems or advantages. So, hippocampus probably almost as crowded as visual cortex, so it's, it's a very hot topic. Many people are doing research on it. So superficially, it's reasonably hard to either be uh, very originally, again, superficially, I would like to point out, uh, or if it's very ambitious project, then you always would get this question, how can you compete with... Uh, to be completely then choose something of your so-called niche, I guess it's possible. I think it's more difficult when you choose area which is, you know, um, as popular as it can, social cortex, probably choose something else. So I 
you know, I just proposed what I was most interested in, and I wouldn't call it strategically the best proposal to get a job. <laughs> um, but I think different people choose different things, because also in my case, you know, people want you to be very original outside the book, whatever that means, separate conversation. But at the same time, people would like you to be able to demonstrate your ability, let's say, experience. And that usually comes from your track record of whatever you did previously. So usually what people do then, they, you know, they change labs several times and they put some, some kind of a package from several labs and that should take a niche. Now you probably have to do triples or whatever is the, you know, presentations and, and whatever. So called original. I don't know. I, I didn't do that. I really, uh, felt like the, the line of research that I, pursued, starting from my PhD um, was, I thought it would give me the kind of results where I want to be at the end. So I, I was very persistent like that, and I had good ideas how to do it, I think, so I proposed that. And, you know, I, I, I don't know if it's the best, uh, it's definitely not easy to, to put that through, because you are then... You know, you have all sorts of difficulties, all kinds of different religion. Well, it's not, but, you know, I constructed it. That's so why I'm not necessarily willing to leave it just like that. But it did seem that you are extending your work with the virtual reality and the, the touching the virtual reality and the border of the, the new project. Yeah, but I started it already when I was doing my Henry Wilcom fellowship. So I was, uh, my interviews. I mean, I'm not pretending it because of the previous communications, but to think like job interviews are showing that kind of data. So that's one thing. And the other thing is it's still it's still on, on, on space. So mm -hmm. you would have to go further away from space. As I said, you would have to start combining it, you know, with other brain regions or whatnot. Which I think it will happen to me because I am generally interested in it. But from my own, I guess, personality, at this, at that point of time, it would be super kind of made up. I always preferred much more natural ways. I had no doubt that whatever environment I'll find myself, um, I need great people who would be interested in things somewhat related, and that would generate very, very different things from what I was doing. So I never felt really uh, that I had to just, I don't know, make up things <laughs> uh, for the sake of making up. But, but yes, that's right. So I, I did propose, and, and I am generally interested going, for instance, much way beyond just looking at generational space, which up to now that's what I mostly focused on, but more towards how we use space and especially how we remember space, how can I preserve that. So I always like this idea of preservation, whatever I can look at or in whatever means I can put my hands on. So that is, is, is very neat from what I was doing. But again, superficially, it's, it's, uh, it's the kind of, it's a very hot topic mm -hmm. for good reason. But it was, you know, it was hot from the beginning of 20th century, but I would say even from the Asian Greeks. I mean, it's a very, very fundamental question. Um, but I think that people think differently, people find themselves in different environments, um, and so on, and people have different luck. Um, I think that they will end up in um, 
doing slightly different, well, not slightly, different things, but complementary, I would say, and, and probably in the end similar in the results because, well, hopefully, you know, the results are reflecting the very same nature of the process of the phenomenon, which is how memories are formed, what they are, and so on and so forth. Um, but, yeah, as I said, I, I personally don't worry about that because there are so many things and how, and so many ways how you can look at it. It just will happen very naturally, I'm sure. Another, perhaps a bit lesser known part of your research concerns dimension. Uh, yeah. And translating your hands still remains a very daunting task. There is a huge gap between organ studies and human patients, and it doesn't seem to be closing very fast. So, what is your strategy to attack the study of Alzheimer's disease? Yeah, so Alzheimer's disease project is actually, um, it's a, one of these very good examples of collaborative process. So, it was initiated by a person from Cambridge, neurologist from Cambridge, uh, called uh, Dennis Chan, who approached John Key because he was interested in kind of creating a consortium which would tackle disease on well, at least three different levels. So we had uh, people in, very interested in molecular mechanisms. Then we were assisting mm -hmm. in the building neurologists to combine all of this for things like, well, understanding mechanisms ultimately, but even in a kind of, let's say, shorter term deliverable, more, more realistic, I guess, in short time, early diagnosis and, and things like that. So in that sense, again, I, I would say I would look at this as, as my, I wouldn't say duty, but duty slash with beauty with a huge interest, I would say to, if I can, give uh, something from system neuroscience to uh, contribute to this whole uh, effort, I would do it. So I did it, and that's how I got into it. Because to me, what seemed being very naive to the field, which sometimes actually that's another thing actually for, for let's say, junior people, being naive is sometimes a huge advantage because you have to balance actually how much you know. Knowing everything is not always very good actually, or having very deep knowledge. So that's actually coming back to your previous questions about being an expert in something and whatnot. Because when you don't know a lot of things, then you can also break the cycle of repeating things. So, but to my naive eye, it seems like a lot of there was a lot of studies being done, but uh, they were somewhat, they were all done in kind of, in separate cohorts, if mm -hmm. you like. So they would be, uh, let's say, a, a cohort of animals where you would quantify a timeline for behavioral changes. And that was always, of course, statistical and, you know, average or something is it, it, very could be very tricky thing. Then there would be an, uh, uh, let's say, in case of Alzheimer's, the spread of power is very important. There, again, there would be an average mm -hmm. timeline of that, and then it, somehow it was all put together. And it's very informative, but it, you can very, very quickly you can see from the outside that, oh, it has to be done in, in a single organism. 
all of it. Mm-hmm. You have to be able to, and, and of course you, you think, okay, I can contribute to that if other people are interested. And so we can look at similar things that you were looking at, like child spread, neural law, and behavioral deficit, but in a little bit different, but um, crucially have different experimental paradigms. So that's how I got involved in it, and I would like to continue with it. I said I, it's not, it's not, um, it's not a center of my own program. But however, I, as I said, I, at least again for me personally, if I agree to the project, I usually try to deliver the kind of art that I agree to. So it's not. I, I would say uh, there would be a lot of effort put into it, but but yes, as I said, it's not like I'm turning into. Because three years ago, in your interview for Welcome Trust, you said that you spend a lot of time either planning experiments or doing them, mm-hmm. and now you are a PI and you have all the attendant responsibilities and bureaucratic pressures and many collaborations. So, do you still want to or are able to spend some time at the bench? <laughs> right now, definitely yes. <laughs> I literally just started in November, and uh, my lab is in, in a way virtual one. I do have um, already two postdocs who should be joining me in a few months and some students, but uh, they're all virtual in a way. Um, but yes, but definitely I am doing experiments still. And I would like to keep on doing it, to be honest. I mean, in terms of my administrative duties, I definitely have more right now. But I think I try to manage it by, let's say, forgetting to check emails <laughs> or, or reply to them you know, in, a, in a kind of more serious way or something like that. Point being, I think, so I hope one can manage it by, let's say, it, it, it must be group size dependent, right? So, if a person has a very large group, then there are more administrators. So, that has to be taken on board. I can't expand so I, I have it in my head. I'm definitely, when I talk to, when I discuss projects with future postdocs and PhD students, again, I'm kind of having the role of the technician in any way, because I have to make sure that all the uh, tools and all logistics is there, and uh, we do uh, build our own a lot, not, not all of it, of course, but that part for sure. And then I think when everything is going smooth or smooth-ish for them, then I have my own things that I really been doing, and I think, so I'm not going to talk about them because they haven't been started, but basically those are kind of things that are way out of my comfort zone, not even necessarily space-related, which I would like to try, uh, which I wouldn't necessarily propose as, as a lab because I don't think I'll get it wrong. <laughs> but uh, but that kind of, because I mean, that's the whole point, right? I mean. I want to be in the lab. If I want to be administrative things, maybe I can do. I can work somewhere else. Um, I think. But having said that, many people are very successful doing that, and I think perfectly fine. What are you looking for when you're recruiting postdocs and PhD students now? It's important for me 
what kind of skills they have and so that was very important and the, the you know the yeah skills again they actually did things themselves and so on. Then it was important to me how um, enthusiastic they were about uh, about their own project first of all. But also then about the program that they were having the lab. So that was extremely important. So I would say I would say this too. Would you prefer a person who knows in and out of one technique? Or somewhat cursorily is familiar with three, let's say. So let's say we have a person who knows everything about that one, and a person who knows a bit of tracing, a bit of optogenetics, a little bit of in vivo electrophysiology. But throughout all of those, he was helped or she was helped by other people in the lab. Well, it sounds like she's probably a little bit. I, if there's a thing, there's a little bit, um, with Tacom, I would say, yes, there is such thing, probably as a little bit, from my own experience. With um, Tatchos or Extracellar, I would say, hmm, if you tell me a little bit, then I'm very curious what you need. It, it, it probably means that she just observe some of the things. I don't know, I, I'm not sure what it means, but it's okay. One person has to figure out everything on his or her own, and another has three postdocs for one postdoc per technique, where I just go and ask every little bit of difficulty that I have, I have a postdoc to solve it. So in the end, my track record looks perfect. I have three techniques in my pocket, but then if I have to do it on my own, then maybe I'm lost, and the other person is not. Okay, so... Okay, so in that case, based on what you just said, um, from these examples and based on what kind of choices I made for positions and people who are offer positions, I would say the, what was it, the former, the mm -hmm. one who knows, um, who, who solves the problem him or herself and knows quite well, um, what, what thing, what needs to be done. I have to ask, uh, what would you say are benefits and challenges of being a woman in science? Benefits and challenges? Um, well, challenge, I think about the challenges. <laughs> the challenges, I think, is a, is a, um, must be quite difficult plan family. I think that's difficult. And I would identify this as Again, I'm not saying that it's impossible. I mean, people did it very successfully, but I'm sure that it was challenging, mm -hmm. even if they did so. Um, and especially for women, because it's just physiology. I mean, even if I think if a partner or a husband are very much involved, which is really great, I, I still think that because of physiology, it must be there. Then it is, I think. Otherwise, I personally never had a very negative experience, to be honest. I was out this question in, in, in the training, actually, where I did my undergrad degree because it was physics and, uh, and yeah, they were interested uh, how is this for a girl and a woman to be in physics department and so on. So, I was very lucky, I guess, or I don't know, but uh, I never experienced any 
major problems. I have problems, but I'm sure my male uh, friends have problems as well. So doing that, and, but I wouldn't say it was beneficial either. I, I wouldn't say that I got some, some excuses from porn for being a girl or female. So, um, so yeah, I would really identify, um, I know this, I mean, I know, I, I assume there is this notion, and statistically speaking, it must be true that there is this implicit bias that's really challenging to be, be a female in that sense. I personally never experienced that, but so if then I personally have to identify the biggest challenge, I would say, as a family um, management. So to me then to see that some institutes or, or universities and so on take measures such as you know, um, actually providing nurseries or these kind of assistance, I think it's really, really, really helpful. Now to the three questions that I ask um, each guest. So, is there a skill that you wish you had picked up earlier on in your career? So, which I do have now or which I still don't have? truth. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I just would like to be even more skillful. <laughs> In, in, in everything, I don't think there's a single one. I think the only, maybe, just in general, I would say, this is going back to the Dendrograph studies and things like that. I feel like um, ever since my, let's say, education, so master's degree and PhD and so on, which have it involved, on both lab work and so on, I feel like the skills that I either pick up or strengthen, they are much, more, much more deeply ingrained in, in my head and in a kind of, in, in how they serve me. So I guess what I would like if I could change it somehow mm-hmm. or if I could influence, let's say, it, it as a kind of in my teaching duties, which I also will have in, in the university now, is to promote uh, practical, promote uh, a, a teaching by problem solving. So that I wish I had more. We did have it uh, in business, for sure. We had a lot of practical, but I think I would I would do it even more, because even practical could be made such that they are more or less artificial. So if you, as a student, can feel that your little bit can solve something cool, mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be a meaning of life and anything, but kind of cool. It just leaves you that sense. You just work out for it harder, you remember it better, and, and so on. So that, I wish, mm-hmm. because, again, that would be not reflected upon one scale, that I would wish to have, but I think the whole repertoire of um, even math using and so on, I think if, if you know, if statistics or something like that goes beyond just you learning such and such form of distribution, blah, 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 but actually this is it, you have to apply, have to solve it, I think you would just, you would just have a much deeper grasp on it. What do you think is the most successful theory in neuroscience today? The most successful theory? Oh, of course, the hippocampus. <laughs> of course, our understanding of how the hippocampus works. No, I don't know. Um, I think we, we do, uh, I think the uh, theories of hippocampus and how the hippocampus spatial work 
um, their part is fine. And they are extremely successful, probably more successful than anything I um, should have before. They, uh, in a different, um, in a different time, very sensitive lives and, and seven and even our own models, they were able basically to predict with, with before experiments in the time, genuinely. I mean, many people say, oh, we predicted blah, 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 some kind of phenomenon, but that thing, that, that, that phenomenon was actually already shown, so I was, I always call it postation. Mm-hmm. Um, but in hippocampus, well, one of the, of course, of course, earliest, um, boundary cells, border cells, they were, you know, they were based on the, uh, 96 experiments mm-hmm. by John and, you know, Burgess and, you know, they had this idea of cells and they were found. And they were found initially in the subiculum and then in China, for instance, that's a kind of success story. Somebody tells now, comes and says, oh, I am expecting such and such cells to be in prefrontal cortex. So I don't know of, uh, of, of that kind of thing, but I am just ignorant, so I'm not suggesting that. If it's the brain related, if it's not necessarily brain related, I do uh, fancy a lot these developments in machine learning and reinforcement theory and so on, what can be done with it. So I do admire that work a lot, would like to have more insights and more um, interactions with this whole side, but, but that's probably too early to call. Um, Brain and on the other side of the continuum, what is the recent piece of data that you are most excited about? Again, I think I would be extremely biased towards this, uh, let's say, system of an analysis work on, mm-hmm. on memories, implanting memories, mm-hmm. using memories, all this kind of framework that I, I fancy a lot. I also like a lot, actually, uh, to be on the record, <laughs> I will mispronounce the name, but the, I think it's Charles Zuckerman from uh, Colombia. Mm-hmm. He's working on uh, taste perception, and his work is just absolutely spectacular. It's so systematic to me, and the, the depth, and uh, I just... That's, I definitely admire his work a lot, actually. <laughs> yes. A lot of ex- experimental data. Which, in, in truly experimental in the sense that, in not just tool development, mm-hmm. but that's even another side of, of the point, which again, I admire a lot of that. Do you have any favorite tool in the making or recently reveals that you think? Is the most promise? Um, well, I don't know. I mean, in what sense the most promise? I definitely like um, uh, optical imaging combined with optogenetics again because of my my own um, interest. I think the 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 recent development of uh, so-called neuropixel probe, which is a silicon probe with a lot of mm-hmm. Contact, that's another game changer which I admire a lot and uh, we already use it for research mm-hmm. so I can definitely see how it will be shaping up the field of system neuroscience and then another one would be, you know, 
barcoding individual cells that are punishing against the mind with other stuff available, which is just amazing. Uh, tracing techniques, there are huge developments from Cambridge actually quite recently using um, some synaptic tracing which be non-toxic, again opening up a lot of possibilities Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, it would be great if you could leave us a rating or a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you are listening to your podcasts. Till next time.